before we hear from the, the Lord's word, let's go to him in prayer. Holy Father, we come before your word and we get to do it so regularly that it can be easy for us to miss what it actually is. You're living an active word, breathed out by you. Helpful and profitable, it confronts us and trains us and teaches us and comforts us and consoles us and inspires us. And so as we come, might you allow us to to do at least these two things, that we'd hunger for your word and we'd be humble beneath your word, that we would come and engage just even in listening to your word with our heart and our soul and our mind and our strength. You'd tune our hearts to do that. You'd soften our minds to receive it. You'd even give us an energy to be able to respond to it. And you'd grant us a humility that we would bend our knees beneath it And that your word would come like clarity into a culture of so many sound bites, confronting us and coming at us so quickly that in this moment your word would speak with authority, it would cut through the clutter, and it would inspire and direct us for how to live this next week. What every single person in this room needs more than anything else, whether we came in as Christians for 50 years or don't yet know you or have been wandering and are coming back or super on fire and living for you, God, what we need more than anything else is to leave this place more impressed with Jesus. So would you make them loud to us in our songs, our prayers, and communion during this sermon? and a benediction as we go to Padden and celebrate baptisms and eat together and throughout this week until we get to gather again for his fame and for our joy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I've shared this before, but for my youngest son, if, um, if Tottenham is playing, if the soccer team Tottenham is playing, he is, he's there, he's watching it. So if it's a 4.30 a.m. game, he will put himself to bed early and he will wake himself up early and he will make sure that his jersey is out. He'll make sure it's clean. He'll get down for the pregame show in order to, to, to make sure he doesn't miss any of the narratives. He follows all these podcasts. He follows all of the transfer news. So he wants to see like who's coming, who's going, what, where, where are we at with contracts. He knows the history of the club. He knows their highs and he knows their lows. It's like, can be heartbreaking to him if they don't perform the way they need to. He knows all the songs. I sometimes catch him walking through the house singing, you know, oh, when the Spurs go marching in. So they took that song and they flipped it to soccer because soccer fans are like that. And, and it's just, and, and, and he's just super into them. And so like, why would he devote so much energy, time, mental space, go to bed early, you know, as a 14-year-old, wake himself up at like 3.30 in the morning because Tottenham means that much to him. I got hit with this driving here today. I was watching a lady. It's like 7 in the morning. Beautiful morning. She's walking down the road, and she has a dog on a leash. I mean, it's just like this in a cup of coffee in one hand. This is like idyllic. Just gorgeous. And then dangling from the coffee cup in between her fingers was like one of those green bags that was just swaying. And I was like, why would anybody do that? That just looks terrible to me. Like ruin the walk. Oh, out here enjoying creation with this poo bag. 
And I was thinking, you know, if I asked her, I said, why would you, I wanted to pull over and ask her, why would you do that? Because she loves her dog. Because she loves her dog. Or she doesn't want to get yelled at. Um, Thinking about a buddy who, uh, last number of years, he and his wife, they had a couple of, of boys at the time and um, decided to go to college, was trying to, to, to get a better job, and so went to Western. They put themselves through Western, graduated, and then he was working for Starbucks corporate and uh, began to work on a master's degree at UW on supply chain, and then graduated there, got promoted, got, went to Microsoft, and now he's working for Amazon, and he's working on an MBA from Boston University. I mean, this is a lot of effort. He has three kids. He's busy. Um, it's busy for his wife. And, and if you asked him, why are you doing all of this? Why do you keep doing this? I think he said, because I love my family. I want to provide well for him. We're going to look at Psalm 132. It is not written by King David, one of uh, Israel's most notable kings, it's actually about King David. It's about his love for God, his delight in God, his devotion to God. And what we'll see, it's how this devotion was actually expressed through joyful, kind of life-consuming hard work, pushing through obstacles and challenges And if you ask David, why would you do this? Why would you set your life this way to to work so hard? I think he would say something like this, because God means that much to me. Today, we're going to look at two things specifically, our devotion to God and God's greater devotion to us. So our devotion to God and God's greater devotion to us. If you're able to stand for the reading of God's word, would you stand with me? This is God's holy, life-giving, incredible word. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah. We found it in the fields of Jair. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness and let your saints shout for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation and her saints with shouts of joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I've prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. Feel free to grab a seat. I 
I will tell you on the, the front end of the sermon, this it was probably one of the, the trickier texts that I've worked with in a long time. It's pro- it took a lot more time than, than usual. It was really hard. I wasn't sure it would all come together. Um, and part of what made it so difficult is that behind Psalm 132 are a ton of other Bible references and allusions. There's a lot of history happening in this, this chapter, there's a lot of stuff in the Old Testament, the first two-thirds of the Bible, and there's a lot of stuff in the New Testament, the, the last third of the Bible, a lot of direct quotations, a lot of allusions, but there's two chapters that, that are really, really the loudest that are happening behind Psalm 132, and it's chapters in 2 Samuel, chapter 6, and chapter 7, and, and you, you might even be able to say, like, Psalm 132 is like the Cliff Notes version, the impact version of those two chapters, or if you want to really complicate it, it'd be 1 Chronicles chapters 13 through 16, and what those chapters are doing is they are retelling the story of King David who longs to get the Ark of God, the Ark of the Covenant, or in this text, the Ark of God's might, back into Jerusalem. That's chapter 6. And then chapter 7 is David then longing to see a permanent house built for God's Ark. And I'm going to unpack a bunch of this stuff. I'm just trying to give you the overview. So 2 Samuel 6, David longs to have the Ark of God brought back into Jerusalem, And then after it's there in chapter 7, he longs to see a permanent structure, a temple built. At this time, it was was lodged in what was known as the tabernacle, which was a semi, it's kind of like, it'd be like the most amazing version of glamping, uh, is how I think of it, this this tabernacle tent that would get set up, this incredible structure, but it still wasn't permanent. And so let me read to you a couple of verses, 2 Samuel 6, 1 through 2. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal, Judah, to bring, up the ark, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And then the rest of chapter 6 recounts the story, and it's quite a story, of David going down and getting the ark with a number of other people. Then 2 Samuel 7, 1 through 3, the ark is back now. And here's what David says. He says, now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies... The king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Now, to understand why this matters so much and why this is such a big deal for God's people, you got to understand what the ark of the, the covenant or the ark of the testimony or the ark of the Lord's might actually is. Um, my first memory of the Ark of the Covenant, like some of you that maybe grew up in the 80s or watched a lot of movies in the 80s, was Indiana Jones, right? And the Raiders of the Lost Ark. And in that movie, it's a story of Nazis that are trying to find the, the Ark of God because they know it's mighty and powerful. And so the whole movie's built around them trying to find it. Indiana Jones is trying to find it first so it doesn't get taken by them. And then the last scene of the movie, I still rem- I, I remember the scene and I would watch it like my, my hands over my eyes as a kid because it freaked me out so much. And I actually went and pulled up a clip on YouTube this last week to see the final scene. And I kind of had the same visceral reaction, because what happens is after they find the ark, and you have this, this kind of, the, the Nazi armies around it, and they open it up, and it's glowing, and, and then all sorts of weird stuff happens that's not biblical, but this is like, and then all of a sudden, anybody that looks at the ark melts, 
They melt. I think they made like a, like human beings out of like candles, and then they just like put a like fire onto it, and it just melted. But it just totally freaked me out. That was my first experience with the Ark of the Covenant. And while they got so much wrong in the movie, here's what they didn't get wrong: the presence and power of God is powerful. It is mighty. Not to be trifled with. Not to be treated lightly. And the Ark represented His presence. The Ark of Your Might, it was a wooden box, about 18 inches high, about a yard long or so. It was covered in gold. It was made of acacia wood, but then covered completely in gold. Inside it, it contained uh, the law of God. It, it contained what's known as a covenant. The, the right and just commands that he gave to his people after he had emancipated and liberated them from slavery. It was, um, it's called in this text, it says, let us go and worship before his footstool. The ark is known as a, as a footstool. And there's actually references to this where what you would have as a king would be on a throne. And then oftentimes there'd be an ornate footstool that, that he would put his feet on. And actually inside of that footstool was oftentimes the commands of that land. It was a way of kind of like the, the king is over these, where this is, this is what you're called to follow. I remember uh, my daughter, Emma, when she was like five or six, saying something like this. Um, I love, Dad, my favorite part of the Bible is the last part of the book of Exodus. I'd never heard anyone in my entire life say that, because if you've read the book of Exodus, like the first 20 chapters are dazzling. I mean, this is like God's people getting pulled out of slavery. This is the plague of the, the, the you know, the frogs come and the gnats come and there's darkness over the land and Passover, and, and then they get freed and they're, they're, they're fleeing and they're escaping and God is delivering the, the, the Israelites out of Egypt's hands and it's incredible. And then you have Mount Sinai where God is rumbling and, and speaking and he gives the among many things, the Ten Commandments. I mean, it's just absolutely sunny. But then right after that, do you know what you end up with? About 18 chapters of instructions. Here's how I want you to, to make the curtains for the tabernacle. Here's how I want you to, to, to sew the garments of the priest. Here's where I want the jewels to go. This is what they mean. So you have that entire list. It's like this template. It's like, it's, it, it kind of, it's, I don't know, it'd be like something you find like on Etsy. Or, you know, you see someone do needlepoint, and then you say, okay, what's the instructions for it? And then, the, the, so it does that, but then it, they actually do it. So they do like six chapters of instructions, then six chapters, which is almost the exact same stuff of them actually doing it. And I remember Emma, Emma going, Daddy, I love this part of the Bible. I said, Emma, why do you love it? She goes, it's like the most incredible craft project ever. <laughs> and it is. Because of what it represents. See, it was supposed to be an echo of heaven on earth. That the tabernacle was supposed to be like this, this eternal heavenly throne room. Now we're told like the highest heavens cannot contain God and the earth is his footstool. That's the sort of objects that we're talking about. This ark was the, the manifest presence of God. Holding the commands of God. It was first constructed in the wilderness. Great care was always taken whenever you moved the ark. It was, it was covered. It was only carried by priests. It, it was never touched. There was two long poles that would go into the ark um, so that nobody ever touched it. You couldn't look directly at it. It would actually lead the people of God as they wandered through the wilderness. It, it, was le it would lead them into battle. God is with us. It would lead them to the edge of the Jordan River where the waters would part, saying, God is fighting for us. Love how Daniel Hyde says it in 
an article, the Ark of the Covenant, God's presence with us. Here's such a mind-blowing idea about the God of the Bible that we have to pause for a moment. The eternal God who is not constrained by the existence of time. The infinite God who is not bound by the constraints of space. The transcendent God who dwells above and beyond all time and space. And the immense of God who fills all time and space condescended to the weakness of his people and became manifest for their benefit in one locale. This God is not bound by time, but he bound himself to the time-bound experience of his people. This God is not bound by space, but he bound himself to this box. He's above all creational constraints, but he bound himself to them. He is everywhere, but he's there. David knew that. He's like, the, the ark isn't here. We need to bring it back. One other aspect of this ark, this and there's so much more. Um, the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Testament, the Ark of God's might. It's not just the presence and power of God. It's actually the place of his mercy. See, so the Ark that contained these covenants, uh, the, his laws, his commands, on the top of it, it had a lid on it. It was a lid made of solid gold with these cherubim on it, kind of these angelic beans. And this, this cover got to be known as the mercy seat. And what would happen once a year is the high priest of God's people, so one person had to go through this labyrinth, and this is where books like the last half of Exodus and the book of Leviticus that have law after law after law and instruction, is trying to get us to get some sense of the very holiness of God. And so a high priest would go through a huge ritual of cleansing and reclothing to be able to go and stand inside what was known as the Holy of Holies. It was the, the very center point of the tabernacle, and then it was the very center point of what became the temple. And in that place was, amongst a few other things, was the Ark of the Covenant. There was incense that was burned to kind of try to veil it. So when the priest went in there, there was like there was some mediated presence of God because he couldn't just stand before God. And one of the things that the priest would take in there was, was, a, was the blood of, of, a, of a sacrificial offering. It was a propitiatory offering, a wrath-bearing sacrifice that was, that was taken for the sake of God's people. And he would go into the Holy of Holies on what was known as Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the day. It got just known as the day. If you said the day in Israel, everyone knew what you're talking about. And he would go into that place with this blood and he would, he would sprinkle it onto the mercy seat. And the symbolism of it is that God, who the highest heavens cannot contain in the earth as his footstool, would look down and instead of seeing the broken commandments, instead of seeing the way that we wander and rebel and having his judgment poured out, he would look down and see the blood and his wrath would be turned away. Forgiveness has been granted. Mercy has been received. And it was missing from the central place of God's people in Jerusalem, the holy city that God had marked out to say, this is my place. It had been missing for 20 years. God was not central. God had been marginalized. God had been pushed out to the periphery. And David was not okay with it. Of all of his errors and all of his issues, I'm always so deeply encouraged that a guy like David is called a man after God's own heart when you know some of the heinous things that he did. What hope for us? But he wasn't okay with it. He wanted the presence of God back in the way it was supposed to. He wanted the glory of God to be displayed. And so he makes this oath. That's, you know, verses one through five. 
You know, remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all his hardships, how he swore to the Lord, how he vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, I will not enter my house or go into my bed. I won't give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Israel. He wanted the ark back. And then in 2 Samuel 7 said he wanted a temple built. God got a hold of David's heart. And when God gets your heart, he gets everything. This devotion, but it's not a passive. It's not just a sitting. This is like hands and feet devotion. This is bringing who you are before God for all that he's worth and saying, God, it's all yours. And I'm all yours. The hardships, this can mean adversities. It can be anxious attention. It can also mean self-denial. Um, it also can be translated costly. First Chronicles 22:14 says this. With great pains, I have provided for the house of the Lord 100,000 talents of gold, a million talents of silver, and bronze and iron beyond waiting. For there is so much of it, timber and stone too, I have provided. David's saying that, and then he, then he goes on and says, to these you must add. He's like, think time, treasure, talents. David is, he's casting vision for God's people, saying, we need to do something about this. And he's going first as a good leader. He's saying, here's what, here's what I'm doing. God is worth it. Would you get involved in this? Would you bring what you can? Would you bring your skills? We need, we need craftspeople. We need, we need the artists. We, we, we need people that have resources. We need the materials. Would you, would you bring your time and your treasure and your talents? Because God is worth it. Devotion has a very tangible way of expressing itself. Love for God results in activity. I was thinking about this in terms of the local church. Um, the business, quote-unquote, business model of the local church has got to be one of the wackiest models I've ever heard of. Let me try to give you the pitch. Here's the pitch. Um, come and join up with this. I'll put it in quotes, this thing, where instead of sleeping in on Sundays, you're going to set an alarm and get up early. You're not going to go to brunch. You're going to come sit in a room. And if you all remember the summers here, right, it'll be like 180 degrees. Try and find parking or park half a mile away. You know, and don't park like blocking people's driveways just in the side or on their bridges that are going into their gardens. We've done that before, too. Try to keep our neighbors happy. But you park like half a mile away or you park over at Blodo Donovan and you take a shuttle in and you gather in a room to sing. How often do you do that in any other part of your life? That you gather in a room to sing, and then you listen to a monologue. How often do you do that? Like, most people don't go back to school because they're like, oh, I don't want to do that anymore. You gather here, and then you do this. You, you, you don't just walk from a mile away or half a mile away. You don't just wake up early to get here. You don't just try to wrangle your kids and try to keep everyone happy that you could get here, you know, five minutes late. That's what we do, and that's good. Um, you don't just do that. You actually, then you work for free. You volunteer in the nurseries. You brew the coffee. You clean the bathrooms. You serve on our safety team and wander the, the grounds to try to, to, to serve and keep people safe. Now, in fact, you don't just work for free. You actually pay for the privilege of doing this. It's a crazy pitch. Here's what I want you to do. Wake up early on one of your only days off, show up in a place where sometimes it can be pretty inconvenient to get to, but then you're going to volunteer, and not only are you going to volunteer, you're actually going to give your money to make it all happen. Whether you, you say it's giving or tithing or offerings or whatever you say, that's what you're doing. 
And then throughout the week, you show up to meetings. We'll have a meeting tomorrow night, and the people that are coming, I mean, they've been working all day, they've been busy all day, and they'll come here, and they'll be here till 9 o'clock tomorrow night. Heard the great story of how people are caring for the Freeze family who's been going through so many things for five months with their baby Gabriel and like the amount of meals. Now I'm looking at, I want to say the names of the people in this room that I just, God bless you. Meals and cards and encouragement and notes and like the Freeze's pipe broke a month ago or so and, and they had to trench it all out. You were over there immediately. You're bringing food, and you're bringing friendship, and, and you're showing up in hospitals, and you're, you're hanging out around dinner tables and in living rooms to try to counsel each other in your marriages and your struggles and parenting and future plans, and, and, and you, you are making the hard stuff a little bit more bearable because you're weeping with one another. And then you go and you make the good stuff better because you celebrate the wins together. And then you go into your jobs, your schools, hey, come follow Jesus. It'll make you less popular. It's going to be kind of awkward. You're going to have to do this dance to figure out what's it look like to have a faithful presence for Christ. And then every so often, I'm going to open my mouth and talk about him so that people that don't know him can come know him. And then next Sunday, you're going to set your alarm and you're going to do it again. Who wants to sign up? You know, I mean, it's just, it's, it's a stunning thing. Why on earth would anyone do this? Because you aren't thinking about earth. You're thinking about the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. You want to meet with him. You want to be with his people. You, you, you want to worship him and exalt him. Because God is worth it. Because Jesus is worth it. Because I'll, I'll, I'll look at you. I, I love you. I love this. You're, you're worth This church is worth it. It's worth this. You know, think about the family that we're sending out to, to East Asia. Why would you leave your, your, your home and your family and your friends and what's familiar in your careers and go to the place that you didn't even sign up to go to? Take your, 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 your one-year-old and try to establish a life in a, in a, in a place that is so different. So, I mean, you saw some of the pictures. It is so different than Bellingham. I know their answer because Jesus is worth it. Jesus is worth it. That's what this psalm teaches. David says, oh, this isn't okay. We need to get the ark back. We need, we need to reestablish right worship. We need, to, we need to have God's presence, his manifest presence. Now, he is everywhere. He's not constrained to the ark, but he's saying, this is my footstool. This matters. This is the mercy seat. This matters. And so David gets busy. 2 Samuel 6, 12 through 15. Let me read a little bit more of as they go and they get the ark. And it was told to King David, or it was told, told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all the, that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps... He sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. Isn't that incredible? This whole journey, six steps. Oh, we got, we got to sacrifice again. Another six steps. Oh, we got to sacrifice again. And part of this, if you read on the chapters, so they could provide all the food when they got actually to the holy city. And they had an absolute mind-blowing barbecue. I mean, it was off the chain. People were so excited. And David danced before the Lord with his might. 
And David was wearing a linen ephod. And so David and all his house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. You seen the movie Footloose? So this would be a throwback ser- a sermon series. We got Indiana Jones and, and the Raiders of the Lost Ark and Footloose, you know, with Kevin Bacon. I haven't seen the new one. I just can't bring myself to do it. Kevin Bacon is Footloose to me. But this is, this is the passage. If you've seen the movie, it's a town that exists where they don't allow dancing. They don't allow dancing. And so David, they're super, super religious. And so he goes, okay, if I can find a Bible passage, if I can find something and quote the word of God. And, and I just think it's funny that my first exposure to the leaping and dancing that David had before the Ark of the Covenant was in the movie Footloose. He says, they're leaping and they're dancing. Let us leap and dance. And, you know, this is probably a good time to tell you we're going to start a dance ministry. Um, Some of you would love it. But that's the idea. It's like get your bodies involved. Like when you're singing and a hand goes up. Or or if you come from, you know, a lot of us come from more reformed backgrounds, you know, just like your hands in your pocket, but your palms go out. You know, just something, something that like your your, your body gets engaged and you you say, oh, God, you're worth it. I'm there. I'm with you. And it was contagious. That's one of the things I want you to hear with this is David's joy in the Lord was contagious. Verse 6, we heard, we heard about this. And then we found, and then verse 7, let's go. Let us go up to the house and worship at his footstool. And then in 8 and 9, this, this acting and this, this asking, this was a, this arise, O Lord, was said at the dedication of the temple by David's son Solomon. This arise, O Lord, was said in the wilderness when they would set out with the ark. Arise, O Lord, let us go. It wasn't just David leaping and dancing. It was anyone that felt like David. They wanted the ark back. They wanted God at the center. They wanted to worship. I'll give you two applications that really hit home for me. Um, if, if worship, uh, trying to figure out how to phrase this. Um, I want this to be invitational, not offensive. Okay, so try to hear it through that lens. If worship, if Sundays, if corporate worship is boring to you, you're doing it wrong. You're doing it wrong. Just think about what's happening right now. Just think about who you're before. Well, you know, I love to trail run. One of my favorite parts about trail running is I love viewpoints. So I'll go up to Galbraith. You can kind of see the outline as you go out of our church and over the lake there, and there's this trail, the Ridge Trail, and you go up, and, and there's this spot where you're, there's a bench, and you're looking out over the city and the islands, and if I, if I kind of step towards the edge. And it's not like this crazy drop, but it's, but it's a pretty good drop. You know, it's like you got the tops of the trees are kind of below your feet. And as I get to the edge, there's just like this feeling, just awe. We want to like ramp that up, go up to the top of Oyster Dome. You know, down the uh, Blanchard Mountain, kind of down towards... Um, Burlington and, and, uh, and, you, and Edison, and you go up and you get up on the edge of this giant rock, and then it is a big drop. And there's something, even when I go there and I begin to step onto the rock, like I'm just kind of like, whoa, <laughs> okay. And the edge is like, you know, 100 feet over there, and I'm just like, whoa. And if I get a little closer, I'm like, whoa. <laughs> and I get a little bit lower. It kind of tells you I'm scared of heights a little bit, but I get a little lower and I just sit there and I'm like, this is, this is awe. I was trail running over in the Roslyn area a couple years ago, and I was kind of in some thick trees, and I ran around a corner, and I ran into a buck. Giant, you know, 
rack on his head, and we're like faced off here, and it was like, whoa, you know, I was in awe. I was like, please don't stab me. You're prey. I'm predator. This isn't supposed to work out this way. But ah. We went to Disneyland, we're in the rock and roll roller coaster, Aerosmith. I didn't know this would be such a throwback 80s sermon, but there you go. So Aerosmith sitting in this roller coaster, and you are, you're bolted in, man. You're, you're not going anywhere. And then all of a sudden, the countdown, 10, 9, 8, and the music starts going louder, and it hits one, rah, 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 lights flashing, boosh, she shoots you like 0 to 60 in like 1.8 seconds. And then you're upside down, and you're screaming in awe. gathered before the Lord Almighty, whom the highest heavens cannot contain. This is about the only appropriate place to use this word, awesome. Awesome. He befriends us. He doesn't stiff on, he doesn't push us away. He welcomes us in Christ. He loves to hear our in-tune and out-of-tune singing. He loves to, to see us struggle and scramble to get our families here and, 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 and the frictions and frustrations and distractions. He, 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 he delights in it. The one who is holy, holy, holy. We're gathered here before him. Let us come worship at his footstool. I love that picture at his footstool. That's the appropriate posture. When you know who God is, you get low. See, that's what's happening here. I love how Mike Cosper says in his book, Rhythms of Grace, throughout history, worship has been a wonder-filled response to the God who made a way to rescue us. Now, if it's boring, let me, let me try to give you a handle. If it's boring, and, and I do, you know, we, some of us do this constantly, constantly, constantly. So it's not to throw stones, but, but if it's boring, if this loses its weightiness to you, what you don't need is better techniques, better music, better sermons, better, you don't need better. You need God to tune your hearts to sing his praise, right? Come thou fount of every bliss. Tune my heart to sing of your grace. You need a work of the Holy Spirit to open our eyes to see what we cannot naturally see. And as soon as you get a glimpse of him, oh, it'll get exciting. Give you one more. I gotta, I gotta, my, my timer says I got time, but I know the clock was so many other things. Um, okay, worship is not meant to be boring. That's, David was, oh, he's like, I'm all in. I'm all in. It's also not just about you. It is about you. But it's not all about you. David was worshiping the Lord, but it was contagious. He was bringing other people with him. It's, we had some friends. They, they moved back to their, their country, but they were here from another country. And they were like, we've never met Christians. We know any Christians our age. We've, we like, no one. And so I was coaching um, a soccer team and, you know, building relationships, invited them to dinner. We formed a really good friendship. And so they, we invited them to come to, to church on a Sunday. And they would come. And I remember they'd stand kind of over on this, this side. And they would stand during the songs. And they would do all this stuff. And, and talking to them after they'd been here for a month or two, I was just like, so what do you all think of this? And, and, and the husband was like, it's amazing. I said, what's amazing? He said, like, you all believe this. I said, what do you mean by this? He says, well, I watch, and there's all these. And for him, he said, young people, because I only know old people that like Jesus, but he goes, young people that are worshiping Jesus. And he goes, the music's like the most moving thing to me, because I'm watching people praise. 
was amazing. We got to baptize the wife before she moved back because God got a hold of her. See, worship isn't just about you. When you are set on fire, you get to spread that. When you are, when you are lit up for the glory of God and whatever your personality is that expresses that, it's contagious. It's one of the reasons why we stopped doing infant dedications or baby dedications or child dedications to do family dedications because I got so tired of the like, hey, let's pray for your kid to meet Jesus, but you as mom and dad aren't gonna be invested or involved or engaged. You know what your kids need most? You know what your kids need most is to see you love Jesus. They need to see you show up to church regularly. They need to see you open your, they need to see mommy and daddy weep before the Lord, smile before the Lord, praise before the Lord, dance before the Lord if that's your thing. Like they, they, if they see that, it's like one of the best things that can happen. I love, uh, let me, there's a picture. I think we're going to put this picture up on the screen. Okay, this is like super old school. This is probably like 2010 Redeemer. We were meeting downtown. And, and in this picture, you have two different families. You have the Paws family and the Ryder family. And these three babies that they're holding right here are getting dedicated. Their families are being commissioned before the Lord. They're, those three are getting baptized at Padden in about three hours. And that is all by the grace of God, but God uses means. And I'll tell you, one of the things that this, these, both these families said, they said, church matters to us. Church matters. We're going to be it. We want to be with the people of God, and they just normalized it for their kids. All right. Point one. You're kind of like, really? I'm like, sort of. We'll do the second one faster, though. David is devoted to God, and it was contagious. But as the rest of the psalm shows, God is even more devoted to us. Verse 10, for the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. Um, also the word Messiah, the, the, the one that's been marked out for, as the leader of God's people. There's prayers in effect saying, it's like a hinge between the first nine verses and the last uh, verses of this psalm. And it's saying, God, will you do what you promised? And God does. And what these verses show us is God does so much more than we ask. What God does is actually greater than what we ask. And there's this comparison that happens. If you wrote these out, verses 8 to 9, and then you put those next to verses 13 through 18, what you see is that God didn't only answer their prayer. He went above and beyond what they actually asked. The people asked God to come to his resting place, verse 8. Verse 14, God says that he will rest there forever. The people, they asked righteousness for the priests in verse 9. Verse 16, God chose not just to provide righteousness, but to clothe them with salvation. God doesn't just cleanse them, he saves them. The people ask that the saints, verse 9, might sing for joy. God promises in verses 15 and 16 that he will abundantly bless, that he will satisfy the poor, and promises the saints will indeed shout for joy. See, he does what they ask because it's what God promised to do. And they say, God, would you do what you promised? He says, oh, I will, but I'm going to do far more abundantly than you can even imagine. Bring your devotion, but bring your work, bring your labor, but oh, mine's so much grander and greater. He does something more, and he brings someone more. God promises something greater, and God provides someone greater. The answer to verse 10 isn't just another good king devoted to God. Ultimately, if you trace the whole Bible story, you go back and you read all of chapter 7 of Samuel, you go and you read the story of Christ, is he doesn't just bring another king, he brings the king. See, the son that would come from David's line, 
The one that would sit on the throne forever. The one that would establish righteousness and judgment. The, the one that would come with mercy and grace is none other than Jesus Christ himself who came from the tribe of Judah, from David's tribe. The greater king who brings a greater kingdom. Who came to give life, and he says to give it to abundance. Who came to the, the, the spiritually poor as the bread of life who came to those not covered in righteousness and he became our righteousness. See, that's the story of Christ and the coming of Christ in the gospel that as he came and dwelt among us that he became flesh. He became part of the tribe of Judah. Then he went to a cross. He didn't sit on a throne. He went to a cross where he was sacrificed in the place of all those that broke those covenants that he might be the offering that could be sprinkled onto the mercy. He is the mercy seat. And when God looks down, he sees Christ. He doesn't see our rebellion. Those who call out to Christ to be forgiven and Christ, he looks down, doesn't see how we have wandered, how we have trivialized him, how we've, we've marginalized him, how he's been distant. We didn't even care, but Christ was the perfect worshiper and the perfect offering in the place of all of us who are flawed, that we might be clothed in his righteousness, cleansed and forgiven, that he might choose us and endure and stay with us and remain with us forever. Forever. Joy. Joy. See, that's, that's what this does when you realize who he is and all that he has done. Why would David, with all this trouble and self-denial, give himself to the work of God? Why would you show up on Sundays? Why would you wake up early on Wednesdays to open the Bible? Why, why would you serve down at Lighthouse and volunteer at Alderwood Elementary School in the name of Christ? And why would you walk that awkward walk at work or at school or in your teams? Why would you open up your, your, your calendars and your your wallets? Like, why would you do all of this? Well, because Jesus is worth it. And he's worthy. Let's pray. To know you and be known by you, to consider your incalculable worth and your incomparable worthiness compels us to work as worship for your glory and your fame amongst all peoples. Jesus, you are priceless treasure, fount of purest pleasure, truest friend to us. For you are God's chosen cornerstone and the precious capstone of our redemption. The combined worth of all precious materials and gemstones that have ever existed does not compare with the unsearchable riches that are found only in you. To trust in you, Jesus, is to be free from the burden of our guilt and the paralyzing power of our shame. We praise you for taking the guilt of our sin and the shame of our brokenness on the cross. To believe the gospel, to boast in the gift of your righteousness, to rest in the constancy of your love, to wake up each day to your endless mercies, to serve you as our high king and perfect savior. What else could we possibly long for in this life and eternity? You became sin for us that in you we might become the righteousness of God. Because of you, King Jesus, judgment day holds no terror for us. The cross was our judgment day. We no longer fear the gaze of God because of the grace of God we have in you. May you become increasingly precious to us, Jesus. May the gospel continue to change the price tags on everything in our world. May yesterday's values be considered today's loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing you. Fill our hearts 
to sing your praise and move our hands and feet to do your work. In your precious name we pray, amen, amen. We're gonna respond as we do every single week as a church. Um, I do wanna recognize, I know we're longer than we typically are. Um, we, we try not to do that, but with all the various things, and, and we don't wanna hurry through this, and so don't feel like you need to hurry through this. Um, I recognize some of you might have things um, but those that don't, I just invite you, like your emails, your tasks, your chores, they'll wait an extra 10 minutes. This is a time for us to respond and, and to engage and reflect upon God's word and, and hopefully what the spirit is doing in your hearts as we receive communion together. There's, there's two individual serve stations in the back. Um, for those that are more comfortable there, there's uh, bread and wine over on this side. I believe both of these are marked and juice and, and bread on uh, this other side. And these, these little elements represent something so massive. They, they represent the very offering of the Son of God, the great King, who is the great sacrifice, who is the great mercy seat that we might be forgiven. As you receive this, I think Jonathan Edwards had a line, something like, the only thing we bring to God is our need for salvation. Like, that's the only thing we add to it. And so there's a reason that we go with empty hands to these tables. And, and my encouragement today is sometimes communion can be very somber and reflective, and, and that can be good and right. But my encouragement is you receive these elements, like let it generate in you joy and great rejoicing that God has done everything in Christ that we might be righteous and saved and forgiven and guaranteed this inheritance that is imperishable in a new creation where there will just be joy abounding where evil won't win, but Christ will reign. And that's what you're remembering. That's what you're retelling when we receive communion. And so the only barrier here to going to this table is do you know you need them? If you know you need them, you are, you are now qualified to go to this table. Go to the table as you feel led. The band will play a couple songs. You don't need to feel rushed through this. Just receive communion as you feel led.